Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Jason Rink. And I'm Doug Stewart. And today we're joined by Brian Zahn, founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's the author of Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, and Beauty Will Save the World. And recently, uh, just being released here in a couple of weeks, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Sure. Glad to be here. So I wanted to first just sort of introduce you to our listeners. Some some may be familiar with your work, some may not. And, uh, you know, I know the first time that I was introduced to your work was in your 2014 book, A Farewell to Mars. And in that book, you document your journey from sort of the typical Christian conservative position that, you know, exists in evangelicalism out there uh, to the position that you have right now regarding uh, violence, coercion, force, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I was a Baptist pastor for a time and uh, was was steeped in the Christian conservative uh, mindset. And so your story really resonated with me uh, when I read it. And I was just uh, hoping that you could just um, sort of tell that story a bit, a little bit about that journey for our listeners. Yeah, sure. I, um, In some ways, my roots are really in the Jesus movement in the 1970s. Uh, that's during my teen years, and I had a very dramatic encounter with Christ. And the Jesus movement had a certain counterculture edge, aura, ethos to it. And we were probably pretty suspicious of war and that sort of thing being compatible with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But over time, I mean, that was my entry point into the faith, but over time, and we're talking about really, you know, a couple of decades, I just slowly came around to what would be the typical conservative point of view where you have an amalgamation of Christianity and empire. And I just found myself completely uh, comfortable with uh, the war waging activities of America and being a follower of Jesus until a very dramatic episode. And I was in prayer, and this was around the year 2004, and I was, I was in prayer, and I, I was reminded of an incident in my life. Now, when I say I was reminded, this was almost a mystical experience. Uh, uh, an episode that I had entirely forgotten was played back in my memory like an incriminating surveillance video. It was the day that the first Gulf War began. And this would have been, what, 91. And so, you know, I was a young pastor of a growing church. This is pre-internet days. And I had the radio on all day long because I was very excited about this, that this war was about to happen. I rushed home from the church at the end of the workday. And I had some friends over. And we ordered pizza. And this is this is what made CNN famous. This is Wolf Blitzer, all of that. This is, you know, in Baghdad and all these bombs and missiles. 
And I sat and I watched in 1991 uh, war televised live, and I I simply was entertained by it, as one might watch the Super Bowl or something like that. I didn't feel any I wasn't conflicted about this. I didn't feel that this was uh, incompatible with my faith in Jesus Christ. I simply, that was what I did, and I forgot all about it until many years later, I guess like what it would be, 13 years later or so, while in prayer, I saw that episode from my life, and I felt as though the Spirit of God says, that was your worst sin. And I wept, and I repented, and of course, repentance means reponse rethink, gain new thoughts, and I began to have a profoundly different way of viewing violence and the waging of war in the context of being a follower of Jesus. I know that this is controversial. I knew it was controversial. And I often said, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to write my war book one of these days, but I'll wait till I'm an old man. (laughs) But then my grandchildren were born. And that's why, in fact, I've got a copy right here. Uh, I've got five grandchildren now, but in 2014, I only had two. Well, I had three by that time, so I dedicated it to Jude, Finn, and Mercy, uh, three of my grandchildren. And the surprising thing about A Farewell to Mars, which is basically my critique of the support of war from a Christian perspective, is that for those that have actually read the book, I've received very little harsh critique and pushback. I'm not saying everybody agrees, but I'm saying that most people who read it regard it as thoughtful and worthy of consideration. And so, if anything, I have been surprised at how well it's been received. So anyway, that's a little summary and how I came to write the book, and there you go. So at the time in your ministry and uh, the you were at Word of Life, um, you know, you've been the lead pastor there for a long time. I mean, you founded the church, correct? And yeah, now been the lead pastor. I've I've been, yeah, founded the church 35 years ago. Yeah, so at that time, how did this uh, either, how did this really begin to impact, um, would you say, your ministry and the way that you began to lead that congregation through through this, um, this sort of change? Was, can you talk about that a little bit, or was sure. there some difficulty and struggle that you came uh, up with? Yeah, there was, to? of course. And... What I did was I preached for six months through the Sermon on the Mount. And I was anxious about it. I was nervous about it. I knew it would be problematic. Uh, We lost members uh, over a period of time from about 2004 to maybe 2009, 10. We probably lost over, well, I know we lost over 1,000 people, maybe close to 1,500. Now, we've also added new people, and but that was, yes, it was very difficult. Um, but I don't want to just be negative about it because we didn't lose everybody. And other people came on the journey with us. Uh, this, this may come as just almost mind-blowing to you. I, I wouldn't have dreamed this would happen. But I have received five letters, emails, some letters, some emails, from career military men who read the book, and because of that, uh, resigned their positions. I met one of them. One of them came to visit me. He was a he had been a CIA officer in Afghanistan, uh, directing drone strikes on suspected terrorist hideouts. 
and then read the book while in Afghanistan, went to his commanding officer and said, I can't do this anymore. It's remarkable. But in the context of the local church, yeah, there, were, there was pushback. There was people that, that simply weren't ready to rethink uh, this very comfortable alliance of church with empire and war and militarism. But many have been. Many have been very willing to rethink it. So um, what I did, I, I just let Jesus do the heavy lifting. I preached through the Sermon on the Mount. And nearly every Sunday, someone would come up to me and say, well, pastor, are you saying, and thus and so. And I would say, I'm really not trying to say anything. I'm trying to place us as a congregation in a position where we can hear what Jesus is saying. What do you think Jesus is saying? And because, you see, the cognitive dissonance response was they wanted they, they were comfortable with arguing with me, but they wanted to keep it that. They didn't want to argue with Jesus. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there was the fallout of losing members. But still, I don't regard that necessarily as a bad experience. I, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and repositioning our church in line with the gospel of peace was a good thing. It cost us some things, yeah, sure, but what, compared to the place where we are as a congregation today, uh, it was absolutely worth it, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Well, and you know, I I really agree with you know the position uh, as a libertarian Christian, and I use that in a philosophical way, uh, not as political party way. Um, I have a stance of anti-war and, and non-interventionism, and you know had a experience in my Christian life where I started to see some inconsistency between like how I could be pro-life when it comes to abortion, but then on the same time, not really be that concerned about, you know, American military, you know, and murder of like people in the Middle East. And that just didn't, started to break down for me. And uh, that's where sort of that started to unravel for me personally. And now it seems so evident or, you know, it's like, wait, you know, duh, you know, this Jesus is nonviolent. Like, it makes so much sense to me now. Why do you think it's so difficult or what's happened in the church that seeing Jesus as, you know, nonviolent, non-coercive, like that the kingdom of God that he is talking about is not one of violence and of the sword, but is uh, otherworldly and different. Why is this lost on so many Christians in the West, do you think? There's a very well-documented story. For the first 300 years, the first three centuries of the church, uh, the church was almost universally pacifist. And by the way, when we speak of pacifism, uh, we, have to under, we have to know how to spell it. <laughs> it. It's rooted in the word pacific, meaning peaceful, not in passive, meaning that we uh, simply sit back. So peacemaking can be very engaging, risky, heroic. I mean, the idea that a pacifist is a coward is completely wrongheaded. Okay, I just wanted to throw that out. And, and, and while we're on it, I might as well say this. Technically, I don't consider myself a pacifist because that is an ethical position that one can have regarding violence apart from Jesus Christ, and many do. And I, while I respect that position, that's not who I am. Who I am is a Christian. And as Christ informs me on the subject of violence, I realize that I am called to follow Jesus in his not only preaching, but in his modeling of nonviolence. And this is what the church did for 300 years. This is well documented. If, if you want to know about this, 
There's a lot you can read. I would maybe first recommend um, Alan Kreider's The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. So this was the position of the church. They understood that Jesus called us to nonviolence, called us to enemy love, called us to embody the peace of Christ in the world. And it remained that way for three centuries until you arrive at the phenomenon of Constantine, who was a general engaged in a civil war, uh, wanting to become emperor. As the story is told, he had a vision and he saw a cross in the sky and says, by this sign, you shall conquer. Of course, conquer in this context is a euphemism for kill. And so he went forth uh, employing the cross as a kind of talisman for good luck in war. He won the Battle of the Milbian Bridge, became the emperor. It's not correct to say he became a Christian because he he delayed his baptism until he was ready to essentially retire from being the emperor because even Constantine understood that you really couldn't be an emperor and a Christian at the same time. But nevertheless, we have something like a Christian emperor, and you then have uh, the beginning of Christianity becoming now essentially the state-sponsored religion of the Roman Empire. Well, this now becomes very confusing. Uh, Why in the world is a militant empire interested in a church anyway? Well, they want to use the church as God's sanction upon their war-waging endeavors. And the church went along for the ride. In one sense, it's hard for me to really critique them I think they just thought that somehow the kingdom of God was coming to the world in this manner, but it did not. In fact, what happened was, is the church became the chaplain of empire. And instead of Jesus being Lord, which of course is a political statement, we hear it as a purely spiritual or religious statement. But Jesus is Lord was the subversive statement that Christians made in those first three centuries that implied that Caesar was not. It's important that we understand that titles like Son of God, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Savior of the World were all imperial titles given to the Roman emperors. It would be on the coins, which was the means of mass communication of that day, so that when Christians began to say, Jesus is the Son of God, Savior of the World, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Jesus is Lord, it is a very dangerous and provocative move because it is a direct challenge to the lordship of Caesar. Well, now that you have a Christian empire, as it were, uh, this creates a problem, because now Jesus is not actually lord. He is, so we have to come up for a new, a new job for Jesus, and Jesus' new job will be the secretary of afterlife affairs. <laughs> the job of Jesus now becomes to get our souls into heaven when we die, instead of actually Lord over the nations. And so that's the so so the, the story of the church being complicit with the militarism of empire is nothing new. This isn't something that began with religious right in the 1980s. Uh, this goes all the way back, and, and there's a steady uh, history of it through the Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, the Russian Empire, the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, etc. Now, now we have America playing the imperial game, and whereas America doesn't officially have a state church, the Ma- America really does have an uh, unofficial de facto state church in American conservative evangelicalism, which is more than willing to bless all of America's war-waging efforts. Uh, but to do so, they have to turn a blind eye to the clear teaching of Jesus Christ. I've, I heard you say in a message one time, 
in order to grab the sword of Caesar, you have to let go of the cross of Christ. I think that's a really well, powerful. I mean, isn't idea. it true? I mean, isn't the cross the antithesis of the sword? Uh, remember when Jesus is arrested and first he's tried on issues having to do with uh, religious matters and he's charged with blasphemy by the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin cannot enforce capital punishment. That is under the jurisdiction of the occupying Romans. So then he's transferred to the Roman governor and Pilate is not interested in any theological dispute, but he is interested in someone claiming to be a king. Uh, because all of the kings in the realm of the Roman Empire were puppet kings. They were client kings that were uh, endorsed and put in power by Rome. And so he asks Jesus, are you a king? Jesus says, it's as you say, but my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, it doesn't come from the same system as the Caesars and the Pharaohs. He says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world, but it's not from this world. And then Jesus says, um, for this purpose, I have come into the world that I might bear witness to the truth. And who is, whoever is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate famously says, what is truth? And walks out of the room. Jesus is then scourged. Jesus is then brought a second time before Pilate. Pilate continues his interrogation, but Jesus is no longer engaging with him. Pilate, in frustration, says, don't you know that I have power to release you and power to kill you? That's where Pilate answers his own question. What is truth? For Pilate and for much of the world, ultimate truth is the power to kill. That the world is run by those who have the power, the ways, and the means, and the will to kill. Jesus says, no, that's a lie. That the world has to be arranged around an axis of power enforced by violence. So that at the cross, what Jesus does is nothing less than re-found the world around a new arrangement. That is, the cross now becomes the center of human arrangement. A Instead of an axis of power enforced by violence, the cross becomes an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. Now, this is a very radical thing to say. I understand it. But it's also known as Christianity. This is what Christians confess about Jesus once it's untangled from empire. You know, there's a lot in there um, that you just keep talking about Jesus, Brian. And, you know, mm -hmm. believe it or not, there are a lot of Christians that I engage with online who have a problem with that. I mean that slightly tongue-in-cheek. There are a lot of Christians who have a problem with the fact that you base your biblical interpretation uh, through the lens of a cross because they see the Bible as what some people have called, you know, a flat reading of Scripture. They kind of see everything as equal, and, you know, they don't really have a problem with power because God exerted power in the Old Testament. At least that's the way it's depicted. Why does why is Jesus the lens through which we see Scripture? Because that that redefines everything. Yeah, absolutely. It does. The Bible is a unwieldy text. It's a very big book, composed over a very long time. And in all sincerity, what can't you justify by a select use of Scripture? I mean, I tell people, look, you just tell me what you want to believe politically socially, culturally, theologically, ethically. Just tell me what you want to believe. Give me 15 minutes, I'll give you your list of verses to prove you're right. 
Of course, that is a misuse of Scripture. If you can make the Bible say what you want it to say, you can make the Bible stand on its hind leg and dance a jig for you if that's what you want. I've had it happen numerous times when I am teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at what Jesus taught about violence, and then someone inevitably will come up and say, yeah, but that can't be because God told Joshua to kill all those people. And you see what they're doing. See what that move is. They're using Joshua to save them from Jesus. So we have to come with to terms with how we read the Old Testament. But if we're going to be a Christian, we're going to center our reading of the text with Jesus. Somebody, somebody will say, uh, well, you're just cherry picking, to which I will say, everybody is cherry picking. There's no way, there's no way to approach the Bible other than you're going to pick some texts as having greater authority than others, or else it's going to be full of contradictions. So we all cherry pick. What I'm suggesting is that we let Jesus show us how to do it, because Jesus is the word of God to which the scriptures as the lowercase word of God is pointing us to. The Bible does not stand above the story it tells, but is fully immersed in it. The Bible itself is on the quest to discover the Word of God. In the Old Testament, what we find is the inspired telling of Israel's story on the journey to come and know the true and living God, but the story is not complete until we arrive at Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. That's what John says in the prologue to his gospel. In the beginning was the logos, the logic of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, he becomes flesh. Human being dwells among us. A few verses later, John says, no one has ever seen God at any time. It's the only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart who's made him known. And we say, well, wait a minute, John. What about Abraham? He saw God under the oaks of Mamre. What about Moses? He saw God and his face was shining. What about Jacob? He saw God at the top of that ladder. What about the 72 elders of Israel on Mount Sinai? The Bible says they saw God and ate and drank. What about Isaiah in the temple in the year King Uzziah died? He saw God. What about Ezekiel by the river of Kibar having visions of God? And I can imagine John saying, look, you don't have to teach me the Bible. I know what it says. But compared to the revelation that we have in Christ, no matter what visions, dreams, revelations, epiphanies, theophanies, Christophanies people had in time past, it pales into insignificance compared to the revelation of the Word of God that became the human life, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus said as much himself when in frustration he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think you're going to find eternal life there, but they are that which bear witness to me. So what the Bible does infallibly is point us to Jesus. But if we refuse to actually come to Jesus and take him on his terms, then what we are doing is using the Bible as the cleverest way of all to hide from Jesus. So the, the Bible is at its best when it's bringing us to Jesus. The Bible is at its worst when it's providing us an out and a way to ignore and hide from what Jesus clearly calls us to do. And I can hear some objections, though. Well, can't we? Oh, me too. Don't, don't, <laughs> well, and the objection, I think, is, well, how do we know anything about Jesus except through the Bible? I mean, you can't even, we can read in Hebrews 1 where God has now spoken definitively through his son, but that's from the Bible. So how do we, what, what, what do we do with that? Because we don't have Jesus living with us today. We have a, a scripture that's, that's hung out with us for 2,000 years. Yeah, I don't have a low view of scripture. I have a high view of Christ. 
Uh, I read the scriptures every single day of my life, Old and New Testaments. I'm constantly living in the scriptures. I'm, as I sit here, I'm surrounded by Bibles. I mean, I'm just like, here they are. Uh, but what is the point of scripture? The point of scripture is not to have a collection of proof texts so that you say, okay, I want to believe in war, so I go find something in Joshua. That today, look, there are aspects of the Old Testament where nearly every modern person would say what I find in the Bible is morally um, intolerable. For example, for example, the Bible does not give a clear, unmitigated denunciation of the institution of slavery. The Bible, both Old and New Testaments, takes for granted that slavery is simply part and parcel with human life. And so if you want, you by, with biblical principles, you can operate the institution of slavery. Now, to the Bible's defense, when you do find slavery being talked about, nearly every time it is trying to mitigate the suffering. But the Bible itself doesn't have a vision of slavery being abolished. Uh, Mark Knoll wrote a very interesting book a few years ago called the, the Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And even northern uh, evangelicals were hesitant to call the institution of slavery sin because they felt like it impugned the Bible. Well, today, who doesn't call slavery a sin? And remember, it's Old and New Testament. New Testament says, slaves, obey your masters. We want to turn that into, well, you know, be a good employee. But that's not what the text says. And so, so you, are, you are bumping up against the limitation of Scripture. What we do find from Scripture is, yes, it brings us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. And from Scripture, we find this trajectory that enables us to continue to engage with the living risen, ascended, and reigning Christ. So I'm engaging with Scripture constantly. I mean, I write sermons from the scriptural text. I read it devotionally every day. I preach from it every week. But I'm, I don't approach it as a collection of proof texts. I approach it as this inspired, sacred text that points me to Jesus. And or, or else then you find yourself in the very embarrassing position where uh, I can't, as a Christian, condemn slavery because I can't find a Bible verse that says so. So I, I think right there is one of the better examples of running up against the limitations of the text. So just don't try to make the Bible um, be more than it can be. And this is a particularly... Uh, this is a particular problem among Protestants. You don't see this so much among Catholics and Orthodox. I don't know if you know the old 70s song by 38 Special, Hang On Loosely But Don't Let Go. That's, that's my philosophy of Scripture. Hang on loosely but don't let go. When I say loosely, in other words, uh, don't hang on so tight that you say, well, I found a verse in the Old Testament where God commands genocide, so I guess sometimes genocide's okay. I mean, who would say that? Other than a fundamentalist Christian that's painted themselves into a corner. So if I ask if I ask a modern person, is genocide always wrong? And a Christian hesitates. Well, you see the problem. Uh, if we're going to be responsible Christians, embodying the ethic of Christ in the 21st century, we have to be able to give a clear response to the question: Is genocide always wrong? Is it always wrong to kill children? Yes, it's always wrong to kill children. Uh, a wrong approach to Scripture will give you pause. A correct reading of Scripture will help you say, of course, murdering children is always wrong, even if you find it in the Old Testament under the banner of Yahweh said. 
Testament. I would say it this way. The, the Old Testament is the record of Israel's journey to come to know the living God, but along the way, assumptions are made, probably inevitable assumptions. But those inevitable assumptions from the Bronze Age doesn't become a warrant for genocide in the 21st century. That's what a lot of my, my new book that comes out August 15th, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, deals quite a bit with this. Uh, two chapters, p- particularly on Old Testament violence, but the whole book is sort of dealing with this sort of question. Well, it, and it's interesting, um, you know, I uh, was was trained up in a fundamental Baptist King James only church. Uh, oh my yeah. And, um, you know, and God did a lot of work in and through my life, through the the ministry of the church and through the teaching that I got and the discipleship. And, you know, yet uh, it's just occurs to me how seeing this um, this way of approaching scripture, though, now um, it makes so much sense to me how difficult it it was and it has been for me to get my mind around this idea that you know, Jesus is the word of God, but the Bible's not Jesus. And, right. you know, d- the Bible points to Jesus and Jesus is beyond the Bible and he can't be constrained to the book. And yet there's a there's a way I would have heard that in the past that would have seemed as though I had a low, that somebody had a low view of scripture. Now I'm understanding this concept that you have or you're talking about where it's like, you know, no, it's a high view of Jesus and it's Jesus being beyond what I thought he was and who he was. And then the ramifications of that are how much more seriously I need to listen to what Jesus said and did and it altering my understanding of like this flat view of scripture where it's raised up Jesus in the scripture and now everything revolves around him. It's it's, uh, really interesting um, how that's really changed my understanding of things. Yeah, I mean, in one sense, every Christian gets it, because most Christians, unless they get themselves in some sort of weird situation, uh, understand that the prohibition against shellfish, which is called an abomination, by the way, is, you know, we just, we're just we just not troubled by that. We're, we, and if I go out and eat some shrimp, I don't think, my God, what an abomination. Um, so, but, but, but here's what we find ourselves doing. We say, well... Um, Yeah, eating shellfish is no longer an abomination, but genocide might sometimes be permissible. Well, come on, you know, don't do that. Yeah, hold on, hold on to the prohibition of eating shellfish then, and and give up, you know, waging war and and uh, yeah, that's like that's a that's a lesson in um, swallowing camels and straining at gnats, I suppose. Right. Right. So, well, um, you know, something else that's interesting that uh, again is is evident to me now but um you know we so we see that jesus confronts this idea of of war and 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 peace and non-coercion and sort of these ideas around that and to then take this concept and say well you know recognize that what jesus taught and who he was had political ramifications the ministry of jesus was was very political and yet, what that doesn't mean is that he's on the side of the political platform of either the left or the right. So what right. what ends up people want to do is they want to say, oh, yeah, Jesus, if he is political, they want to use him to baptize their platform. Right. 
Exactly. Jesus stands apart from that, and he asks us to endorse his platform, so to speak. Is can you speak a little bit to this idea of how um, Christians, you know, and people tend to want God to be on their side, and what side is God really on? And then, you know, also where do the politics of Jesus sort of where might they rub up against? what the right thinks they are and what the left thinks they are. Wow, yeah, that's a lot. Let me think here. Um, You know, what happens a lot these days is when people begin to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, they begin to see, wow, this really is not a comfortable alignment with the religious right. But if they're not careful, what they simply do is— swing over to the other side and say, okay, well, as it turns out, Jesus is a Democrat, which would, you know, is just a silly move. The problem with the Christian right and the Christian left is that the Christian, that Christian is re- reduced to an adjective in service of the all-important noun of Democrat or Republican, so that you, you end up with, with, the, with the political tail wagging the Christian dog. And so I am real clear. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. Uh, I'm not entirely disengaged from politics because I want to be responsible. But I remember um, Barack Obama when he was campaigning for his first election, you know, sometime in 2007 or something like that. Um, someone asked him if, if he were elected, and it was someone from the religious right. It was like a trap question. And they asked him, if you are elected, will you rule, will you govern, uh, rule wouldn't be the right word, will you govern according to the Bible? And I thought Barack Obama had a very thoughtful response. And he said, I don't know how I could, because if I took the, if, if I did, I might have to abolish the Defense Department. <laughs> so my, my, point is, my point is, neither the right nor the left, neither Republicans or Democrats, in those systems that in when the day is done are still committed to empire, neither one of them are capable of really embodying the politics of Jesus. So, you know, um, I, I just, I don't want my passion to be wasted in, in that. On the other hand, I, I know that I am tempted toward what might be called Christian anarchism. But I call it a temptation because I try to resist, because I'm, I'm afraid that that might verge on being irresponsible. And I don't want to be guilty of what some would accuse me of, of simply being irresponsible. On the other hand, the, the New Testament, the Old Testament gives you a clear vision for a theocratic society, and it ends up failing. That's part of the lesson. Jesus comes along as a reformer within that and says, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like that. This is what a lot of the Sermon on the Mount and just, quite frankly, a lot of what Jesus was doing. You, you could say that really all Jesus ever did in his three-year ministry was to announce and enact the kingdom of God. See, the problem with kingdom is it's an archaic term. Uh, so let's say it this way. All that Jesus ever did was announce and enact the government of God, the politics of God, the reign and rule of God. This is what it looks like when God is in charge. But it is a subversive movement within a larger context. I've sometimes wondered, is the kingdom of Christ necessarily 
for lack of a better word, and this is a terrible word, parasitical, uh, or to use a parable that Jesus used, are we salt? Are we uh, yeast within the dough that be, that affects the whole thing? But see, the, the kingdom of Christ can function within a lot of different political environments. In other words, Christianity can function within a democratic society, a socialist society, a communist society, a monarchical society, and has. So I don't know that the kingdom of Christ requires a particular political system, but is a subset of politics within all of those that emphasizes mercy and justice and compassion and those sorts of things. But now we're, we're going rather deep into aspects of political theology that fascinate me, but I think are also quite demanding. Um, just for those that are interested, the armchair theologians out there, I would say I'm really influenced by Stanley Hauerwas. As far as political theology goes, if you're familiar with his work, that would be pretty close to where I'm coming from. When your book, Farewell to Mars, came out in 2014, I was very excited um, to promote it because many libertarians are already sort of, they already lean anti-state in all of the like really obvious oppressing ways like war. Right. So it's kind of a ripe audience to enjoy your work about, about war and kind of rethinking the American way in, in that regard. The, the one thing that we do at the Libertarian Christian Institute is we try to promote a consistent ethic of peace. And I think that's yes. for, for Jason and I and for the other people who uh, host this podcast that aren't, that aren't with us on this episode, it is the way of peace that kind of grounds our thinking in politics. Now, we're called libertarian not because of a political party, but politics in that broad sense of you know, right. how, how do people live together and cooperate and, you know, how do we dwell together, you know, in the right way? And we believe that Jesus does have something to say about, about how people ought to belong together on this world where there's scarcity and where, there's, where we're influenced by the plague of sin. So, you know, Jason and I are definitely interested in hearing thoughts on what, what does that look like on the ground when it comes to things like, and, and you've tweeted about certain things, um, you know, either, and, and I, you've tweeted about things like mercy as it applies to things like wages or as it applies to some, some things that are, you know, economics based. Where do we, I guess the question for me, let me boil it down to a question. What do we do with Caesar's coffers? Because those, those don't exist. There's not a big money pile there because everybody voluntarily without the threat of violence, gave Caesar all of our money. That money is there because it's been extracted. Okay, well, here, here are some thoughts. First of all, uh, the kingdom of Christ seems to be a vision that is very local. Uh, the idea of nations, from what I read in the scriptures, I don't think God is inherently opposed to nations. In fact, I don't think that at all. I do think God is inherently opposed to empire. Now, let me give some definition. By empire, I mean large, wealthy, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda. That's an empire, and that's what God is opposed to. That's what God has always been opposed to. It's one of the major themes of both Old and New Testaments. 
Um, Doesn't sound like any nations the, I've heard of. Well, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> the irony is dripping. Um, so, on the other hand, we we still have to find what human beings are the most social of all creatures. Uh, we simply cannot even imagine surviving unless we do it together. Um, you know, I have a cat, Fyodor Dostoevsky. If all of a sudden my cat and I are just in the woods with no assistance, my cat will be fine. I'm going to starve to death pretty quick, probably. Uh, especially if I don't have access to implements and knives and things like that, which, you know, I don't know how to go make a knife on my own. So we have to cooperate together as a society. Um, to just even survive. That's what human beings have to do. But I think our vision needs to be primarily local. When you're talking about America, the problem is you have a continental size empire with military bases in like something like a hundred nations. I think the role of the church in that context is simply to be a prophetic witness and continually try to mitigate the harm that the empire might inflict upon the suffering. Um, I know that the libertarian position is necessarily suspicious of taxation. I don't necessarily share that. Uh, I know that we speak about it being extracted by violence, but the fact of the matter is I've never had a gun pointed at me for the sake of taxes. Now, someone might argue that, you know, all I have to do is withhold long enough and I'll, and I'll meet that gun. Well, but that's, I'm not going to do that. I, 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 I don't like all the ways that my money is spent in taxation, but I understand that if we're going to cooperate together, there's give and take, and that's how that's going to happen. I think be. our position would be more that, and and we do we do argue that, of course, but I think the position would be very similar to what you would say is that politics is we ought to focus on a local politics as opposed to a continental sized politics, and that's where we would. I, let me say it for me, I, that's where I would argue that the closer you get to a local scenario, the more politics can reflect that a genuine working of the people. There's there's little, and there's little, you know, I remember when, when Obamacare was passed, whether, you know, people like that or not, I was thinking, why in the world is Nancy Pelosi, who, I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania, she was in California, why is some Nancy Pelosi have a huge effect on what my options are as an individual in the in the country it's this it's very disparate it's not local at all who we should have on in this conversation is not you and me it should be the amish i mean i'm talking about a group of people that are that are that are historically peace church that are entirely nonviolent and if the american society collapsed tomorrow they'd be fine you and i wouldn't but they would be because they actually are doing this. Now, they still also pay taxes because, you know, they would just as soon not have the police come haul them off to jail. So they pay their taxes. But they actually have cobbled together a alternative society. And yet most of us are not – well, I'll speak for myself. I feel – I'm not ready to be that disengaged from the wider culture. Uh, I think – I, I still I don't want to be that separatist, but I do admire what they've done, and I think okay, there is a group of people that in in certain aspects really are embodying the kingdom of Christ. But if we're not all going to think in terms of some sort of communal life, uh, then maybe our 
posture and our position within the wider culture is that of a, something of a prophetic witness trying to constantly call the kings to act according to mercy and justice. But it's tricky. I know it is. And I, and I know that even in my own positions, in my own witness, I know I'm not always consistent. I'm aware of that. And I know that I can say I can, I can be self-contradictory. But that's just part of the struggle of the complexity with political theology. You have said in several sermons, and you've quoted him in books, Walter Brueggemann, who is um, apparently a very big influence on your theology mm -hmm. and the way that you think. And I've, I've read a couple of his books, and I'm very taken with his view of prophetic imagination. I think that is something that needs to be done over and over, and it's always manifests itself differently in different ways. One thing that I have noticed, and maybe maybe you can shed some light on this, I've noticed that a lot of the theological arguments that are very heavily against empire, Stanley Harawas, Walter Brueggemann, mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple others, and the authors are escaping my... my, uh, my their, William Cavanaugh, yes. example. Yeah, they're very much anti-empire, and you read and you're thinking, oh, this is great, we need to have a prophetic voice against empire, yet they are also very much in favor of the kinds of things that in our country require empire to implement. For instance, universal health care and you know, minimum wage laws at the federal level. And it, it seems, I don't know why, there, it's a, maybe it's a disconnect for me, maybe you can maybe connect the dots, but they seem to want to rely upon the empire to get the kinds of things that they see are based on mercy and social justice. Yet they're very much anti-empire in their theology. Well, I think it's just a, a matter of what we're going to cooperate together to do. Uh, are we going to cooperate together to build a trillion-dollar military, or are we going to cooperate together to see that those that are sick among us get the health care that they need? I think it really is just a matter of are we going to act neighborly or are we going to act imperial? Um, I think that's where we say there's a scalability problem. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just kind of look for the day when um, when health care is taken care of and the Air Force has to have a bake sale for their B-2 bombers. <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to raise money to build a billion dollar bomber. Would you like to buy a cupcake? <laughs> so, it's just it's just how how does a society cooperate? What are the goals? What are their aims? And I like being in countries that have long since given up any imperial militaristic aspirations, and they get on with the business of seeing how they can together make life good. Uh, I, I'm just back from being in uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the island of Jersey. Uh, last month I was in Portugal, and I like those places. And, you know, it's interesting, if, you, if you're a smaller nation, and you're not trying to run rule the world militar, militaristically, uh, you can pool your resources in ways that are life-affirming and that seem to have something to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. And I, I applaud that. You know, you're touching on something that has actually challenged me as I've sought to bring together my libertarianism and my wanting to follow Jesus and this whole call to mercy and all of these things. And I, I think when I ask myself, well, if I, could, if I had to have one or the other— uh, every time I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, let's spend all of the money that goes on building the war machine towards like helping other people. Like if I have to have one or the other. 
and it's it sort of speaks to what um, I think Doug was getting at. You were getting at on this idea of you know when you look at these smaller nations and when you look at and and I look at this country and I say we're a, we're supposed we were founded as a nation of of independent states that acted more as countries and I think it really right. is these arguments and discussions get so difficult because of the scale and because uh, right. it's you know loving my neighbor locally looks different than loving my neighbor in California and um, the means to make that happen so but I really appreciate you just spending the time to work through that with us. It's a question we really like to talk about um, and, and get to the bottom of. I really wanted to give you an opportunity uh, because I'm super looking forward to reading it. Um, and I know Doug has started to read it already, uh, but you have a brand new book coming out. And, mm -hmm. you know, personally, all of the books that you've put out to this point that I've read, including uh, Radical Forgiveness, we haven't mentioned, which is just really, really great. Um, you know, I think you just have really a, a, a prophetic voice in our culture and, uh, I appreciate it. And so can you tell us a little bit about what this book is about and, um, you know, uh, let people know how they can get a hold of it? Yeah, I, um, the book is centers in the hands of a loving God, which is obviously a twist on Jonathan Edwards, very famous sermon centers in the hands of an angry God. I'm not necessarily trying to pick a fight with Jonathan Edwards, but I am contending with this particular sermon that has shaped the American religious imagination more than any other sermon. And I'm dealing with the question, ultimately, is God really angry, vindictive, retributive, and violent, or not? And if we're going to say, well, no, I don't think God is, what about Old Testament violence? What about the wrath of God? What about the fear of God? What about hell? What about the cross? Is that where God employs violence toward a redemptive end? What about the book of Revelation? Isn't Jesus going to come back on a flying white horse and kill 200 million people? So I'm dealing with those issues throughout the course of the book. Is God angry, violent, and retributive or not? And if not, well, how do we reconcile that vision of God with what we find in the scriptures? So it's it's quite immersed in the, in the scriptural text dealing with, as I said, Old Testament violence, the fear of God, the cross, hell, and the book of Revelation. And it releases August 15th. Yeah, I did notice that it's uh, available for pre-order on Amazon right now. Uh, and a book I am reading right now is The Crucifixion of the Warrior God by Greg Boyd. And mm -hmm. so it's just interesting. It seems as though, um, you know, you both have this you're you're wrestling through a similar issue, him in yes. a two volume, you know, set, and you and <laughs> something that's probably going to be a bit more accessible to the <laughs> average reader. I would suspect it's going to be a lot shorter, that's for sure. And I, I, by the way, I have read I have read Greg's Crucifixion of the Warrior God, and I also read. Do you mind commenting on your thoughts of his book? We are friends. I'll be with him next month. Um, and I just wrote an endorsement for his forthcoming popular. He's he's coming out with a popular version that's much shorter. He's coming out with like, I don't know, it's like 250 pages, something like that, maybe a little more, uh, called Cross Vision. But it's simp it, it's really a condensed, popularized version of Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Greg and I are on completely the same page at where we arrive. We arrive there at slightly different paths. Greg is a little bit more committed to, uh, he, he puts a lot of pressure on 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God. Uh, I'll say, yeah, but 
that doesn't necessarily mean that all scripture is a historical account of what actually happened. So Greg, I think, puts a lot more pressure on himself to to be a bit more biblicist than I am. But we're on the same page. We arrive at the same place. We like each other. Um, and I'm going to go over to his house when I'm in St. Paul next month, and we're going to we're going to sit down and hash it out. <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, there's something happening with some really the spirit of God is doing something. I believe in some really amazing servants that he has here, like you, like Greg Boyd, even Keith Giles' uh, book "Jesus Untangled." I, I like just, on I this, just read that. I just read it within the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I just think I am optimistic of Amen. this um, message and this paradigm in this way that Christians in America, especially a new generation of Christians who are really want to explore this idea about what is God like? And is God, is Jesus what God is like? Is Jesus what God has to say? And and for me, that's a really amazing idea, uh, you know, to be true, is that Jesus, who I think we all would agree is like the most amazing individual that's ever lived and, you know, the most uh, ceaselessly wonderful and marvelous and like unsearchable, you know, uh, being, that's what God's like. And somehow we can reconcile Jesus and this other these other ways or shadows that God has maybe shown up to people as, or us as, and we can align those things and it can make sense. And so I just appreciate that there are people out there doing the work and that this revelation seems to be coming at such a time as this. Amen. Thank you, Jason. Yes. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you so much. uh, And uh, look forward to having the opportunity to talk with you and possibly see you again in the future. Thanks a lot, Brian. Awesome. Great. Blessings to you. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.